From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The military takeover in Niger provides a lens through which we can see the impact of post-colonial exploitation of Africa. We continue our conversation with Professor Gerald Horn about the international implications of this flashpoint. In Niger, and in Nigeria, I should add, there is grave concern that Washington has not learned the lesson of Libya. Recall that Mm. intervention uh, a decade or more ago, which has unleashed instability throughout the sub-region, including Niger. And the 78th anniversary of the dropping of an atomic bomb on the people of Hiroshima is occurring as a movie about the father of the bomb, Robert J. Oppenheimer, is a box office hit. Former Iraq weapons inspector Scott Ritter spoke at a commemoration near the United Nations. And I will tell you right now, with absolute certainty, I and every single Marine would have obeyed those orders had they been issued. Because we were the executioners. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. First, some headlines. There are reports on Friday as we go to broadcast that the economic community of West African states led by Nigeria is working on a plan for a possible military intervention in Niger following the military takeover in Niger and the ouster of that country's president, Mohamed Bazoum. The planning process was announced one day after the group ECOWAS ordered the activation and deployment of what they called a regional standby force to, quote, restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger, end quote. But ECOWAS also said in a statement that they have not given up hope of a peaceful resolution to the crisis. Much more on Niger with historian Gerald Horn after headlines. Wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui have killed at least 55 people, and the death toll is expected to rise as rescuers search the area, including the historic town of Lahaina, which was burned to the ground. Four fires began in West Maui on Tuesday, and as of Thursday, officials said that none of the blazes were under control. Many survivors of the fast-moving fires said that they were in danger before receiving any fire warning and some were forced to jump into the ocean to escape flames. Hawaii Governor Josh Green connected the fires to global warming. In Black Lives Matter news, six former Mississippi sheriff's deputies pleaded guilty Thursday to subjecting two black men to racialized torture and shooting one of the victims in the mouth, leaving him to die, after a neighbor called in a complaint about black men living next door in an all-white area. The U.S. Department of Justice launched a probe into the case in February after an Associated Press investigation linked these Rankin County deputies to at least four other violent encounters with black men since 2019 that left two dead and another with lasting injuries. In Minneapolis, the former police officer who held back a crowd of bystanders during George Floyd's fatal arrest in May 2020 was sentenced to four years and nine months in prison for aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. And finally, in culture and media, a petition has been launched against what organizers are calling the new McCarthyism, practiced by political and media establishments, both liberal and conservative. Targets are peace activists, 
Critics of U.S. Foreign Policy and Chinese Americans. Three authors of the petition, including Code Pink Women for Peace, the People's Forum, and the Tricontinental Institute, were recently smeared in a New York Times article because they received funding from a wealthy left billionaire. The petition reads in part, quote, Their strategy points to a sinister image of a secret network of funding the peace movement. However, there's nothing illegal or fringe about opposing a new Cold War or a, quote, major power conflict, end quote, with China, views shared by hundreds of millions globally. Receiving donations from U.S. citizens who share these views is not illicit. Meanwhile, when white neoliberal philanthropists flood the nonprofit complex with significant funds to support their political agendas, this is rarely scrutinized or made accountable to the communities they impact, end quote. The petition is posted at peoplesforum.org. And finally, finally, the African Diaspora International Film Festival, ADIFF, is in D.C. August 11th through the 13th at George Washington University Student Center, Friday, August 11th through Sunday, August 13th, 2023. And it will include the D.C. premiere of The Woodstock of House, This documentary details the triumph of a music genre that was attacked and nearly destroyed in the late 1970s for being too black, too Latin, and too gay. It also portrays the rebirth of this music genre called house music, thanks to black teenagers from the south side of Chicago and a chosen few DJs who had a role in the creation and growth of this musical genre. For more information about the African Diaspora Film Festival 2023, search ADIFFDC 2023. That's ADIFFDC 2023. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Wake up! They've been hating since Benjamin Banneker, the first DC artist to let you know you can't handle us. Taught you how to see without cameras, created DC, yet y'all worshiping scandalous. Taught you to hate the smart black man, accused him of acting white, not a dark black man. Pitching that color versus the brain so that any black man who thinks for himself is insane. I laugh when artists complain about DC, I'm out here fighting for Screaming in Fiji, y'all trying to impress some dudes in PG, or whether it's your mommy or your granddaddy in Southeast. Y'all brothers better pace up, pace up. Ain't but so much space, they gon' let y'all take up. They legalize trees, whitey getting all caked up. Eyes wide open, y'all brothers need to wake up. Yeah, y'all live in that dream. Not Dr. Kings, but the dream of supremacy. You're not concerned with your future or history. You love vanity more than your families. Yeah, y'all live in that dream. Charged up over just from places y'all ain't never seen. Don't know how to read, but know how to ping. Auto correct, auto tune, and auto sing. Y'all offended by flags and words like fag. But got the nerve to walk around wearing redskin swag. My God, I'm calling on you like a dad. Let me be your beacon or a fountain to the path. So many crooked cops, politicians, who the real thugs? Pharmaceuticals and serving all the real drugs. Hitting this Mary J, looking for a real love. 
eyes wide open so you can really feel love. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And in these times of fast-moving world change, monumental change that we are living in, I'm always happy to be joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author of more than 40 books and the Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I, I should get right to it and pick up where we left off last week. The military coup or military takeover of the government in Niger is still in the news. You advise the on-the-ground family to pay close attention to whether there would be a military attack on Niger by or intervention by the countries of ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States. So that attack on Niger did not happen on the weekend of August 6th, but on Thursday, August 10th, there were reports of ECOWAS leaders meeting and ordering the activation and deployment of what they called a regional standby force to, quote, restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger, end quote. So it's not really clear to me what that activation and deployment means, but we're relying on you to tell us the important, you know, what the important news is out of Niger over the last week and your reaction to everything that's happened since we last spoke. Well, I've been monitoring Nigerian media very carefully over the past few days, and it's quite vibrant and quite progressive in many respects. And what they've been focused on is an apparent phone call from Vice President Harris to Nigerian leader, President Tinubu, who, of course, was just inaugurated uh, within the last few weeks. Apparently, she was putting pressure uh, on him because of Niger's importance uh, to the North Atlantic nations in terms of uranium, in terms of drone bases. And, of course, they have leverage over President Tinubu. Uh, the civil society suggests that the United States, in fact, has documents that would incriminate the president, but they refused to release them. They also suggest that this former accountant, former executive at Mobile Oil, which has masterminded the pollution of the Nigerian environment, has been involved in money laundering, perhaps even drug dealing, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And the electoral corruption that is in Nigeria makes what happens in the United States seem tame by comparison. Stories of mass gunmen during the elections entering polling sites and snatching boxes of ballots and making away with them. And so Nigerian civil society is also wondering uh, why there is this loose talk about a Nigerian-led military intervention in Niger when Nigeria has not subdued its own internal antagonists, speaking of the Boko Haram, the religious zealots who specialize in kidnapping teenage girls who also are along the border with Niger in northern Nigeria. And of course, the Nigerian military has cooperated with their Nigerian counterparts in seeking to repress Boko Haram. I dare say that that will hardly be the case if there is a military intervention. And then there's the banditry in that part of Nigeria as well. And they're wondering why the president is not concerned about that. There's the piracy 
in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, not far distant from the mainland where Nigeria sits. And a very curious story appeared in the Wall Street Journal when Thursday, August 10th, about General Barmu of the Nigerian military leadership. He apparently has spent time in Washington, D.C. The Wall Street Journal suggested that the United States spent decades cultivating him. He studied at the National Defense University, hard by the Potomac River. And they were also raising questions, which I'm not sure how to accept, suggesting that despite his being part of the so-called junta in Niger, that he may still be cooperating with the U.S. authorities, but that may just be a way to sandbag him with his comrades. You know that uh, Victoria Nuland, the number two in the U.S. State Department, was just in Niger making threats, which is her specialty. She described the talks as being, quote, difficult, unquote, which indeed they apparently were, because in Niger and in Nigeria, I should add, there's grave concern that Washington has not learned the lesson of Libya. Recall that Mm. intervention uh, a decade or more ago, which has unleashed instability throughout the sub-region, including Niger. That's one of the many reasons why nations like Algeria, a border mate of Niger, nations like Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, even nations as far distant as Guinea-Conakry and Mauritania have poured cold water on the idea of a, an ECOWAS military intervention. And one would think that Washington, which is egging on this military intervention, uh, would have not only learned the lesson of Libya, but would also realize that its plate is full with this catastrophe unfolding in Ukraine, with the alarm bells rung in the White House just a few days ago when there were stories appearing in the press about a Chinese and Russia flotilla appearing off the coast of Alaska uh, with regard to the problems that the United States has with Saudi Arabia, uh, which bids fair to jack up the price of gasoline at the pump once more. And I don't think, however, (laughs) to be frank, that Washington has learned the lesson. In fact, what they're seeking to do, apparently, is recreate the Cold War in Africa. Recall that about 60-odd years ago, when Africa was surging to independence, the continent was basically split into two blocks, the so-called Casablanca block, led by Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana, Sekou Touré's Guinea-Conakry, and then the Monrovia block. Yes, Monrovia, Liberia, which was the pro-U.S. block. Uh, that caused uh, enormous and immense difficulties uh, on the African continent. But it seems, once again, that Washington is trying to recreate history. You know, speaking of recreating history, you know, you mentioned Libya, and I was really struck by hearing translated comments from Colonel Maiga. He's a leader in neighboring Mali, which supports this new military government in Niger and how he made direct references to the 2011 NATO attack on Libya and the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi. And it was striking to me because, you know, for many months or even years, that was a a steady reference point on this show because after that 
attack, that decimation of Libya, the residue was was felt all over Africa, especially West Africa, where you had heavily armed militias uh, spreading and creating chaos throughout Western Africa. And so when he made that reference, he seemed to be talking about, okay, well, we know what happens when they attack us in Africa. And basically, you know, we are not going to stand for that again, that we've been since 2011, we have been facing the aftershocks of their attack on Africa. So I'm going to play a little clip of that. I would like to remind you that Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger have been dealing for over 10 years with the negative socioeconomic, security, political, and humanitarian consequences of NATO's hazardous adventure in Libya. Of course, we ask ourselves, if it took us 10 years, how many years would it take us to get over another adventure of the same nature in Niger? We don't know. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. One thing is certain, President Goita and President Traore have clearly said no, no, and no. We will not accept military intervention in Niger. They are coming for our survival. I know that you heard that. I mean, were you struck by that statement or, you know, it just kind of made sense in terms of the all the turmoil that's happening? Well, of course I was struck by it. And what it reminds us of is this unavoidable fact that Washington creates problems in places like Africa, then poses as the force that will solve the problem. It's both the gamekeeper and the poacher, the arsonist and the firefighter. And what's remarkable as well is how their puppets mimic the words of Washington. Now I'm speaking of the leader of Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, President Mutara, who, of course, uh, engaged in a bit of sleight of hand in extending his term of office to a third term. Perhaps he'll even go for a fourth term, which did not necessarily comport with constitutional mandates. We did not hear a peep out of Washington as a result, perhaps because he's in France's pocket. And he's also talking quite tough about a military intervention uh, in Niger, which I assume he does not feel there will be Uh, any repercussions for his own country. I should also point to the difficulties that Washington is having on the continent as a whole. I'm now speaking of South Africa. That is to say that recall a few months ago that the U.S. ambassador to South Africa charged that Pretoria was sending military arms, military materiel to Russia to use on the battlefield in Ukraine. South Africa denied this. There was an investigation. It turns out that at the naval base in question that the U.S. ambassador was referring to, that actually Russia was unloading military materiel for South Africa, for South Africa to use against religious zealots in northern Mozambique, who, by the way, might be informally supported by the U.S. of A. Of course, South Africa has demanded an apology. Uh, This is one amongst many uh, difficulties that Washington and Pretoria are now enmeshed in. Washington is not happy about the BRICS summit that will be unfolding in a few days in Johannesburg, speaking of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, with a number of African nations also uh, planning to join 
that important summit. Apparently, BRICS will not only be in, uh, expanding its membership, but apparently moving further along the road to de-dollarization, that is to say, not using the U.S. dollar, perhaps even moving towards a BRICS currency. Uh, this is causing grave concern in Washington. It's worsening relations between Washington and Pretoria, and it's one more factor that we have to take into account when we try to analyze this new Cold War unfolding on the African continent. I think probably because of some reading I've done, like political reading I've done in the last year, I've started to reconsider that the Cold War was not really cold, but it was during that period an attack on liberation movements. So they call it a Cold War because maybe there were no shots fired between Russia and the United States. But in the meantime, people in Asia, Africa, Latin America were being slaughtered, you know, under U.S. imperialism. So they people were very much experiencing a hot war. But this conflict in Niger has provided this lens to see and to take another look at all these issues of post-colonial exploitation. You know, what is neocolonialism? What does a neocolonial puppet look like? And how do they act? And what is the impact of people in their country? And all this, all these different levels of exploitation, you know, ecological, economic, you know, just human, political, reminds me of your book, White supremacy confronted, you know, U.S. imperialism and anti-communism versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rosa Mandela. And when we talked about this book, it was really so much about South Africa. But this this conflict in Niger, it touches on some of the same themes. And it's another conflict that is uh, allowing uh, African-Americans to relate to the struggle of Africans and also draw parallels between a place like Niger and Haiti. Indeed. And in fact, the theme that emerges from all of these crises that we're referring to is that the North Atlantic nations are more concerned with what's in the ground than the people walking on the ground. What I'm suggesting is that their concern with the oil places like Angola, a topic in the book you just mentioned. They're concerned with the natural gas of Mozambique. Uh, they're concerned with the chrome and the chromium in Zimbabwe. And of course, the uranium in Niger, the natural gas in Nigeria, the oil in Nigeria. And likewise, with regard to Haiti and Niger, there are clear parallels. First of all, there's French colonialism and French neo imperialism uh, that is a factor in both countries. Uh, we all know about the Grand Haitian Revolution, a world historic event that set the stage for the abolition of enslavement in this hemisphere, in the United States not least, and we know how France resisted uh, that uh, transition. We know how France imposed uh, sanctions and a kind of reparations on Haiti, which helped to cripple its economy. And 200 years later, France is still at it, uh, egging on an intervention uh, by Cote d'Ivoire, by Nigeria, into Niger, so that it can preserve its uranium interests, which are used to power nuclear plants in France, which generates electricity. So I'm afraid to say the more things change, the more they remain the same. I'm happy to say that the white supremacy book also has quite a bit of Washington, D.C. and DMV history, because, as you know, 
a good deal of the anti-apartheid activism was centered in Washington and in Maryland and in Virginia. And one of the lessons that readers can extract from these pages is the lesson of how we drove the United States to be to the left of many European countries when it came to sanctions on apartheid. Uh, that was quite unusual. And it came as a result of organizing. It came as a result of activism. And those are lessons that are wholly applicable today. Absolutely. So, Gerald, how do we want to wind up here? What do we want to look for in the coming days? Uh, like I said in the intro, I don't know what this activation and deployment means by ECOWAS and what kind of regional force do they have? And none of that is clear to me. Well, we should hold our breath, which is my advice of, of last week. And we should also take to the streets, uh, take to the State Department, take to the White House, because this could be opening the gates of hell in the heart of Africa, Nigeria and Niger. They share an a thousand kilometer border. They have ethnic uh, commonalities. There are houses on both sides of the border. Already with the sanctions that ECOWAS has imposed, it's really curtailed cross-border trade, which is biting into the Nigerian economy as well. So it's up to us and, of course, up to our comrades and counterparts across the Atlantic to make sure that another Libya is not created in the heart of Africa, this time as opposed to North Africa. Uh, we should raise the cry, hands off Niger. Right. Hands off Niger. And that will be the cry we raise here on On the Ground. Hands off Niger. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. They're turning corridors into condos, very farms in the bank rolls and whole foods. And they've been plotting since the Reagan era. It's like the vote don't matter. We pay these taxes and we hope for better. These youngest smoking boat and going mad. They screaming gang gang gang. They kill with no remorse. What a pity. Mad city, no dreams. Triple rings. Popping pills, pills, super lean. This is like Co-Trainer Marvin, Malcolm and Martin. Bellies are aching. People are starving. Some nine to five. Some people robbing. Some freedom fighting. Protest and mobbing. Better call for a call of action Before they come to your crib blasting I swear they ain't acting Cause I seen it from D.C. Paris to London B-Bar All the way to South Africa I've seen it Garland Nixon to come to the stage. Please. All right. 
let me, I have to go with my timer because I'm just OCD like that. I may go like one second over and then I totally freak out. Um, so what I'd like to do is talk to a different group. I love you people, love you all, but we got to talk to some of the people who are in this group. Certainly we've got some people here from Langley, Virginia, from the Hoover building, the FBI building. You know you're there. Thank you for helping to fill out the crowd. But what I'd like to say, and, and it's going to go somewhere, is to the people who are doing this stuff, and, we, and, and, and I'm going to say two words that pops into everybody's mind, bomb shelter. Right. When you say they're doing this, most people are going to say, yeah, but they're not scared because they got bomb shelters and they figured that they'll blow us all up and they'll go to their bomb shelters and they'll all be good. Right. Which I think there's probably some validity. Well, most people think kind of raise your hand. You kind of have that feeling they got bomb shelters and maybe that's part of the plan. OK. So to them, I'd like to throw this out to you. Just think about the people, you know, you're watching it right now. Eventually, let's just say your plan goes down and you end up in the bomb shelter. Because right now, what are they afraid of? They're afraid that the little people will all wake up and rise up against their totalitarian ways and take over things, right? Well, let's just say they get what they want. They end up in a bomb shelter. So there they are in the bomb shelter. Now, in a bomb shelter, you're a billionaire. You're Bill Gates or somebody. You're a senator. You're whatever. You're in the bomb shelter. You're living good. But in a bomb shelter and being who you are, you got to have cooks and you got to have security and you got to have people that do things for you. Right. Little nobodies that clean up and all that kind of stuff. Right. Now, when you were out here, you were worried about all the littles rising up against you. But in that bomb shelter, and I know you're watching at some point, the security people and the, the cleaning people will start to think and they'll start to meet and they'll start to say, you know what? They can't really pay us because there ain't no banks to cash our checks. And if we did, what would we spend them on? We can't go outside because everything's new. It's kind of boring. We're eating powdered eggs. We're drinking our urine that's been purified over and over. That's where we're going to do the rest of our lives. And at some point, they'll realize, wait a minute. In the other luxurious side of this bomb shelter, we got a bunch of billionaires and senators and all these people telling us what to do. But there ain't no such thing as billionaires and senators anymore because all that's behind us. So in reality, in the same way that the rules-based international order means might makes right, I can do what I want to do because I got a bigger military, right? Fangs and claws, back to the days when whoever had the biggest fangs and claws ruled the forest, right? At some point, they're going to realize we're security. We got guns. And we're chefs and cooks. We got knives. And on the other side of this mom shelter is a bunch of billionaires who are out of shape and they ain't got no weapons. And your biggest fear in this world that we were in, if you get in that bomb shelter, at some point, your biggest fear will come true there. And they'll wake up and say, wait a minute. We got the guns, we got the knives, they can't pay us, and they'll come over and have a little talk with you. And real, and they will say, we've come to realize that you guys aren't senators, you're not billionaires. They'll come to realize that everybody's the same, except they got guns and knives and you don't. That's gonna be the thing, that the rules-based international order in the bomb shelter is simply gonna be the people with the weapons and the power and the most people 
are going to have the power. And at that point, you will meet your fate. At that point, the thing that you feared that people hear, that the average, regular, everyday, working class person would wake up one day and would rise up against you, at that point, in your bomb shelter, that is bound to happen. There's no way that doesn't happen. There's no way that people sit in a bomb shelter for six months, eight months, or a year, and don't start to kind of philosophize and realize the power dynamics, and you are going to lose in the worst possible way, and they're going to realize that all of their family is dead, that everything they know is gone, and you're the one that did it. So I say to the, the neocons and the people in Congress and the people in power who are acting in such a reckless manner with our lives, thinking that maybe somehow they can escape and they can go into the bomb shelter. First of all, what kind of life is that? living in a bomb shelter until you die at some point because you can't go outside of it. But secondly, inside that bomb shelter, the dynamics that you fear have to come to fruition sooner rather than later. It would be your worst nightmare to be in a bomb shelter. Imagine that. You're a bunch of rich people in a bomb shelter, and on the other side of the bomb shelter is a bunch of people that you screwed over and killed their families and destroyed everything that's dear to them, and they wake up and realize it. I say that to them, just maybe it'll scare them enough with reality that they'll think about not doing it. But that particular little story should be a story, should be a story for us. Let's not wait for the mom shelter. The, the fact of the matter of it is, if we ever come to the reality that there's more of us than there are of them, far more of us than they are than there are of them. We ever come to the reality that we need to stop arguing over Trump or over who's like, yeah, this guy's a libertarian, this guy's a socialist, this person's a trans person, this person's a whatever. That keep the things that they bring up to keep us arguing amongst themselves, right? Ourselves. That they always have a, a, a it's a Putin or it's a, a G or it's somebody and it's Assad, they always have a boogeyman 7,000 miles away that we're supposed to be scared of. And as long as we're afraid of the boogeyman 7,000 miles away, we won't look at Capitol Hill. We won't go right up to Wall Street. We won't look at the people who are responsible for sending our jobs overseas yeah. and doing all the things they've done to make our lives a living hell and now bringing us to the very doorstep of nuclear disaster. So in the same way that my story of the bomb shelter is a simple one, sooner or later, the dynamics are going to be obvious. Let's get the dynamics obvious now and let's make sure that we understand. Look, in that bomb shelter, the cooks and the, the, the security people, and you're going to have technicians. The technicians are going to be much better trained. They're going to have highly, ed highly educated. You're going to have various groups, but at some point, they're all going to come together and realize the smallest group in this bomb shelter are the people that caused all the problems. Perhaps we should address that. Yeah. They might want to read something about the Donner Pass. I think that may be a consideration. But the bottom line is this. That's where we are now. The people that are causing all the problem is the smallest group, the tiniest fraction of 1%. There's too many of us. Stop obeying. Stop doing what you're told. Stop accepting their rules. And I'm not saying just run out like a crazy person and streak down the street naked. I'm saying act in a way that gets something done. Act uniformly. But we have the power. We have the most people by far. And if we act and act with force and we act with integrity, it's where we're not violent. We're not doing the things that we, excuse me, that we tell them not to do. Last, I'll say this, and this sums it all up. 
There's only one way to peace. If you want the world to be peaceful, there's only one way to be peaceful. To be peaceful. The only way to bring peace to the world is to be peaceful. So everyone, when you leave here, ask yourself in your personal life, are you being peaceful? Are you being the person that you want your town, your village, your society, your country to be? So thanks a lot, everybody. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I would really love to have my good friend here, Scott Ritter. I think all of you know who Scott Ritter is to come to the stage. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I feel like Eddie Vedder up here or something. Uh, everybody can hear me okay? Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody for coming out today. It's a beautiful day. I want to thank the organizers. This is a wonderful cause. And um, hopefully we'll be able to take what happens here today and build a community that can uh, bring about the change that we're all looking for. In uh, Chris Nolan's movie, Oppenheimer, there's a, a very important scene. It's about the man who made the atomic bomb. J. Robert Overnight. He oversaw the team, the Manhattan Project, that built the bomb. And there's a scene in the movie after the bomb has been perfected and tested, the Trinity device, where Oppenheimer is watching two men in uniform packing up the gadget to send away. And he starts to opine on how it could be best used. He says, you know, if you, uh, if you ignite the bomb at a given out, and they cut him off, they say, it's okay, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, Oppenheimer, we got it now. We got it. And thus we transferred the world's most deadly weapon away from the scientists who made it into the men who would use it. And they did use it. 78 years ago today, the United States of America dropped one of Oppenheimer's gadgets on the city of Hiroshima. We don't know how many people died. Ranges from 77,000 to 125,000. We don't know. Three days later, over the city of Nagasaki, we dropped a second gadget. The total casualties go between 130,000 to a quarter of a million people dead because of these bombs. But we don't know because most of the evidence vaporized. They don't exist. They're gone. The world's most deadly weapons. The men who dropped these bombs... Paul Tibbetts and Charles Sweeney were men of honor. They're men who were serving their country. Paul Tibbetts flew combat missions over Germany in an effort to defeat the Nazi threat. So I don't want to hear anybody say how evil he is. He was doing his duty as an executioner does their duty. He never once voiced any regret for his decision to drop the bomb. To his dying day, he said, what I did was right. You know, and I have some sympathy for Paul Sweeney. Because when I was in the Marine Corps, I was in a field artillery unit that was nuclear capable. And twice a year, we practiced what it would, the procedures we would follow if we were called upon to deliver a nuclear device against a hostile enemy force. 
And I will tell you right now, with absolute certainty, I and every single Marine would have obeyed those orders had they been issued. Because we were the executioners. We weren't the ones who came up with the device. We were the ones who were going to use the device in defense of our nation. But then something happened. In the 1980s, rational thinking seemed to grip the United States. There was an amazing event that took place in June of 1982, right down the road here in New York City. One million Americans, like yourself, gathered there and demonstrated against nuclear war, demonstrated for arms control. At that time, the President of the United States was Ronald Reagan, hardcore conservative. He called the Soviet Union the evil empire. A year after this demonstration, ABC put out a TV series called The Day After. Ronald Reagan watched this series. And after seeing the depiction of what life after a general nuclear exchange between the United States and Soviet Union looked like, he turned to his advisors and he said, is this, is this what it's going to be like? And they said, no, Mr. President, it's going to be far worse. It's going to be worse than you can possibly imagine. And that set off a light bulb in Ronnie Reagan's head. And in December of 1987, he signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with his Soviet counterpart, Mikhail Gorbachev, and began the process of getting rid of J. Robert Oppenheimer's device. It was the first time that the United States and the Soviet Union didn't speak of limiting the growth of nuclear weapons, but actually eliminating these weapons from the face of the earth. And you know who participated in that? You know who led the charge? Who's on the front lines in making this treaty possible? People like me, executioners, formally trained to use nuclear weapons, and we're now having our skill sets corralled into getting rid of nuclear weapons. And ladies and gentlemen, that was a good thing. Unfortunately, we were not able to maintain the momentum. We got knocked off track. Arms control today is not happening. The last remaining arms control treaty, New START, expires in 2026. And there is no negotiation taking place today to renew it. And this is happening at a time when both the United States and Russia are talking about spending billions of dollars, some would even say trillions of dollars, in modernizing their nuclear forces. But this time, the modernization will take place without any limitations, without any restrictions imposed by arms control. It will literally be a nuclear arms race. Now, what makes this more dangerous in the 1980s? In the 1980s, we operated with a doctrine called mutually assured destruction. It meant you use your nukes, we use ours, we all die, therefore, let's not use the nukes. Now, that's a pretty stupid way to live life, but it's better than thinking that you can win a nuclear war. Today, the executioners of Americans' nuclear policy believe a nuclear war can be won. We have a doctrine that says that we can preemptively use nuclear weapons anytime we want to. It's not just me saying this, ladies and gentlemen. We'll take the words out of the mouth of a Trump-era arms control official speaking to the Arms Control Association when he said, it is the goal of the Trump administration that every morning Chinese and Russian leaders wake up. They don't know if this is the day we're going to nuke them or not. That's an honest-to-God quote. That's insanity, and yet that's America's policy. Now, you'll say, wait a minute, Scott, 
that's Trump. What about Biden? Biden has the exact same policy, the exact same policy of nuclear preemption, a policy that's being implemented without any restraint from arms control. And now we bring in the issue of Ukraine. We have a war going on in Ukraine that's not a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a war between Russia and the collective West, including the United States. The goals of the United States in this conflict are simple. The strategic defeat of Russia. Now, Russia has said that a world without Russia is a world no one will live in. Which means if you try to strategically defeat Russia, they will use their nuclear weapons to protect themselves. Yet the goal and objective of the United States in providing more than $180 billion of U.S. taxpayer funding to Ukraine is to enable Ukraine to strategically defeat Russia. That means that our policy is to commit suicide. Ladies and gentlemen, that is literally the definition of insanity. That is crazy. Now, today... In the United States, there's men and women who wear the uniforms of the armed services of the United States who are sworn to protect our nation. Some of these men and women have the job of using nuclear weapons if and when called upon. These are people like Paul Tibbetts who will execute that mission. But you know, the people in the world today that have the ability to employ nuclear weapons don't just speak English. They speak Russian. They speak Chinese. They speak North Korean. They speak French. They speak Indian. They speak Urdu. Hindu, I guess I, I should be accurate. Apologize out there. <laughs> I'm a Marine. Sometimes I say things that I shouldn't. But uh, the bottom line is we no longer have a nuclear monopoly. If nuclear weapons are used, this is a global problem. But we are the only nation in the world that has a doctrine of preemption. We are the only nation in the world actively pursuing a policy supporting Ukraine with the goal of the strategic defeat of Russia that will result in general thermonuclear war. We are the only nation willingly trying on a daily basis not just to have Russia wake up and China wake up questioning whether or not this is the day we will use nuclear weapons. Every person in the world wakes up wondering if this is the day now let's go back to Oppenheimer's the movie about Oppenheimer that scene J Robert Oppenheimer turns to the men in uniform and tries to tell them about the nuclear device and they say we got it here boss we got it here okay but now we know we can't claim that we don't know no one in this audience can say I don't know about the threat nobody in the world today can say I don't know about the threat and it's time that we have that meeting again with the executioners, with the men and women who will execute nuclear policy. And this time we turn to them and when they try to say, we got it here, we say, no, we got it here. It's over. The day of nuclear terrorism is done. We must learn to recapture the spirit of disarmament that gripped Ronald Reagan, and there's no one out there right now that's more conservative than Ronald Reagan, that gripped him in his heart to make him believe that having nuclear weapons was insanity and the best course of action for the United States and the world was nuclear disarmament. We need to recapture that spirit, and I'm hoping that today we can begin a process that leads to a moment next summer when we can put a million people back in the Central Park and send a signal to those who wish to represent us in the White House that nuclear disarmament is the only direction for the United States, that the day of the executioner is over. Thank you very much.
so much. Thank you. <laughs> that was Iraq Weapons Inspector Scott Ritter. And before him, talk show host and political analyst Garland Nixon. They both were speaking in front of the United Nations on August 6, 2023, the 78th anniversary of the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima by the United States. As the U.S. is in a proxy war with Russia, the other major nuclear power on Earth. And Scott Ritter will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. Or I'll also link to all of my shows on my Instagram page, Esther underscore Averum, I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. The music we played this hour included All Go Blind by The Crossroads, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you for listening to our newest podcast. And I want to remind all of those who are listening who aren't yet a subscriber, you can subscribe for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon account. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And you can be a part of this totally listener-sponsored project. And you can also go to our website, onthegroundshow.org, and see more ways to give like PayPal or to send us a check. And we so appreciate it. Thank you for listening and check us out next week. Thanks.